0: Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the Global Church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Queen Esther, Unedited. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, September 27, 2015. In late 1946, three Bedouin shepherds tossed some rocks into a cave, heard pottery break, and discovered seven ancient scrolls. This was at a place called Qumran, about a mile from the northwest corner of the Dead Sea. That accidental discovery turned out to be one of the greatest (coughs) archeological finds in modern times. When archeologists excavated Qumran, they found a treasure trove of ancient artifacts, coins, potteries, cloth, rope, baskets, a sophisticated water system, and so on. Next to the excavated site is a cemetery with over a thousand graves. What most captured the imagination of scholars and the public were the scrolls found at Qumran. Among the tens of thousands of fragments that were found in eleven different caves, all within a radius of about two miles, 972 discrete texts were identified. The sectarian Essenes who had fled to the desert were clearly a text-oriented community. Normative, authoritative, and divinely inspired texts were central to their way of life. Among the broad diversity of texts discovered at Qumran, legal, liturgical, political, and so on, about 200 of the scrolls were manuscripts from every single book of today's Jewish Bible. Every book, that is, except for Esther, which is this week's lectionary. The text collecting Essenes had no need for Esther. What accounts for this glaring omission among a people who were conspicuously devoted to holy books? Why did the Essenes exclude Esther? Esther has flummoxed Jewish and Christian interpreters alike for a number of reasons. The story takes place among Jewish exiles in Persia, not in more familiar locations like Palestine, Egypt, or Babylon. The plot is explicitly secular and not even remotely sacred. According to the story, an orphan named Esther hid her Jewish identity, married the pagan king Xerxes of Persia, and then became the queen. Through a series of bizarre circumstances, she and her cousin Mordecai thwarted the plot of Haman to annihilate the Jews. The tables were turned, and it was Haman and his family who were executed, and the Jews who exacted revenge on their enemies. Esther is notable for what it never mentions. God, the Torah, Jerusalem, or the Temple. By one count, on the other hand, the pagan king is mentioned 190 times. The plot, it hinges on intrigue, Hatred, deceit, and the revenge of the Jews who massacred 75,000 of their enemies. There's no mention of ritual purity, religious customs like the Sabbath or prayer or dietary laws, or the Hebrew sense of justice, mercy, and kindness. And when both Mordecai and Esther send letters to the scattered Jews to celebrate their victory, They send it under the auspices of the Persian court, and not that of any Jewish leader. From the perspective of the author of Esther, writes Michael Satlow, it's at least plausible that Persian Jews (coughs) could live a full and satisfying life, close to the royal court, with no knowledge whatsoever of any authoritative writings. And perhaps even without any distinctive religious customs. No wonder the Essenes neglected Esther. And no wonder that no other book in the Bible refers to it. And no wonder there was an effort to upgrade the original Hebrew text of Esther with a newly sacred makeover. As it turns out, the later Greek version of Esther in the Septuagint interspersed 107 new verses throughout six places in the original 167 Hebrew verses. That is a massive makeover. The KJV calls these, quote, the additions to the book of Esther. Indeed. When Jerome translated the Bible into Latin in the 5th century, he recognized these Greek additions for what they were, later corruptions of the original Hebrew, and so he excised them, collected them, and placed them after the end of Esther, which finishes at chapter 10, verse 3. But the efforts to rehabilitate Esther didn't stop there. In the 13th century, the Catholic English cardinal and Archbishop of Canterbury, Stephen Langston, gave these six Greek interpolations, now collected at the end of Esther, chapter and verse numbers, as if they were a continuation of the original Hebrew, which, of course, they weren't. So, instead of Esther ending at 10.3, as in the original Hebrew, thanks to Langston, his version of Esther continues on from chapter 10, verse 4 to Esther 16.24. And what a makeover it was. There's no question about the purpose of the spurious Greek material. It wants to sacralize a secular story with a more traditionally religious storyline. In the words of one scholar, the later material significantly alters everything about the original Esther its protagonist, plot, piety, and purpose. So, for example, the very first verse of the spurious Greek editions, 10 verse 4, says, And Mordecai said, These things have come from God. In the later material, God, in fact, is mentioned more than 50 times. Unlike in the original Hebrew, in the new and improved version, Esther and Mordecai also pray to God. And so, Esther has had both Christian and Jewish detractors who objected to its inclusion in the Bible. In his Table Talk, for example, Martin Luther was so hostile to the book of Esther that he said, quote, I would, it did not exist, end quote. Calvin never wrote a commentary on it. But ironically enough, nonetheless, every year since the story of Esther, Jews around the world have observed the Feast of Purim that's mentioned only in Esther. According to Esther 9.22, it's the month when their sorrow was turned to joy, and their mourning into a day of celebration. The feast includes two readings of the book of Esther, first on the first night of Purim, and then the next morning. The most common takeaway from Esther is that it's a story about God's hidden providence. He works in unspoken and unknown ways. He's present even when he's absent. I like this interpretation. I believe it's true. And yet, this reading feels a little too easy and breezy. Esther makes me think more deeply about the absence of God. As in the poem called Via Negativa by the Welsh poet and Anglican priest, R.S. Thomas. Listen to his poem. Why, no, I never thought other than that God is that great absence in our lives, the empty silence within, the place where we go seeking, not in hope to arrive or find. He keeps the interstices in our knowledge, the darkness between stars. His are the echoes we follow the footprints he has just left. We put our hands in his side, hoping to find it warm. We look at people and places as though he had looked at them, too, but miss the reflection. Finally, Esther reminds me how tempting it is to edit my own story in order to make myself look better more spiritual and pious, like that later Greek version did to the original Hebrew version of Esther. In fact, it would be liberating to tell the truth about ourselves, to our own selves and to others. But as Frederick Beekner writes, quote, that is often just what we also fear more than anything else. And so, little by little, we come to accept instead the highly edited version, which we put forth in hope that the world will find it more acceptable than the real thing. So, thank God for Esther. she didn't need a makeover, and neither do you or I. For books this week, I review a new novel. The author is Kent Haroof. The title, Our Souls at Night, a Novel. New York, Knopf, 2015. This book is 179 pages. In an interview just six days before he died of interstitial lung disease at the age of 71, Kent Harouf described the origins of his final novel. After learning that his disease was incurable and irreversible, he decided how he would spend his last days. He says in the interview, at the beginning of May I started to go out to my writer's shed outside the house, and by the middle of June I had written the first draft of a new novel. I've never had that experience before. I don't want to get too fancy about it, but it was like something else was working to help me get this done. Call it a muse or spiritual guidance. I don't know. All I know is that the trust I had in being able to write every day was helpful. Haruf's best-known book, Plain Song, from 1999, sold more than a million copies and was a finalist for the National Book Award. In 2012 he won the Wallace Stegner Award. This new novel, Our Souls at Night, was released in May of 2015. Like his five previous novels this one is set in the fictional town of Holt on the eastern plains of Colorado and depicts life in the rural West in 2014. The book begins on the very first page with a small town shocker. It reads, and then there was the day when Addie Moore made a call on Lewis Waters. She proposed that the widower neighbor come to her house so that they could sleep together, not to have sex but to share their stories. What? said an incredulous Lewis. How do you mean? I mean we're both alone. We've been by ourselves for too long. For years. I'm lonely. I think you might be too. I wonder if you would come and sleep in the night with me and talk. So, That's what they do. Each night, Lewis takes his pajamas and his toothbrush in a paper bag over to Addie's. The locals gossip, family members meddle, but they don't care. I don't want to live like that anymore, says Addie, for other people, what they think, what they believe. I don't think it's the way to live. They have better things to talk about than, quote, these small-town, small-minded pissants, like the death of their spouses, an affair long ago, a lonely grandson, 44 years in the same house, gratitude and regret, doing the best you can even when it's not good enough, and admitting that many things can't be fixed. There's no pretense or melodrama in Harup's characters or his prose. Only simple candor. Lewis, for example, remembers his 47 years as, quote, a mediocre high school English teacher in a little dirt-blown town, end quote. They take Addie's grandson to the country fair, cook hot dogs around a campfire, weed the garden, and get a mutt from the animal shelter. In Haruf's hands, this is the sacred ordinary, the most and the best anyone can hope for, and which is fully satisfying when discovered. A new novel by Kent Haruf, the title, Our Souls at Night. For Movies This Week, we go to the country of Hungary. The title of the film in English is White God. 2014 from Hungary. My wife and I watched this art house film after she heard an interview about it on the PBS show Fresh Air with Terry Gross. And then I noticed that it had won two awards at the Cannes Film Festival. A mutt of a dog named Hagen gets separated from his adoring owner, 13-year-old Lily, when her father refuses to have a dog in the house. The abandoned Hagen then joins 250 other stray dogs in Budapest that the city council or state law is rounding up to get revenge on the people who abuse them precisely because they aren't purebred pedigrees. In a nice dramatic ambiguity, you never quite know until the end of the film whether this is more like the cutesy Beethoven about a lovable St. Bernard or Inuritu's Amos Peros about animal cruelty. White God was Hungary's entry for Best Foreign Film at the 2015 Academy Awards. It's in Hungarian, with English subtitles. We watched this film on Amazon Instant Video. And as we're now in late September, for Poetry This Week we've posted a poem by Mary Oliver. It's called Fall Song. Another Year Gone leaving everywhere its rich, spiced residues. Vines, leaves, the uneaten fruits crumbling damply in the shadows, unmattering back from the particular island of this summer. This now, that now is nowhere except underfoot, moldering in that black subterranean castle of unobservable mysteries. Roots and sealed seeds, and the wanderings of water. This I try to remember when time's measure painfully chafes. For instance, when autumn flares out at the last, boisterous and like us, longing to stay. How everything lives, shifting from one bright vision to another, forever in these momentary pastures. Mary Oliver, Fall Song. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, September twenty 2015. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.